These days, there's this popular sentiment that Christianity is oppressive and that it is somehow responsible for key social problems in the world and that to fix these problems, we must minimize the influence of Christianity in our culture. History tells a much different story. Thank you.
wonderful for us to have worship this week even on camera. I know for me that's one of, been one of the things that I've been missing most about being in quarantine and lockdown is not being able to worship together because even though I still take the opportunity to blast my worship music in my truck and just turn it all the way up and feel like I'm singing with other people, uh, it's not the same as being able to gather in a room of people. Um, and so I'll just pray for us today that wherever we are, we're going to be able to connect with the Lord anyways. Even though we may not have a giant group of people to be around us reaching out towards the Lord, um, I'm just going to pray that you can still feel the Lord's presence in that way. Um, so Jesus, I just thank you so much that we can still meet online in this way and we can still have our Zoom Ohana group meetings. We can still meet in our, our youth and keiki services via Zoom. And I just pray that that... Um, that togetherness, that your spirit would be on that, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would still give us that sense of community, um, that even as we worship at home, Lord, that we would still feel that presence, that the whole church is worshiping alongside of us and just reaching out to the Lord. Um, I thank you so much uh, just that we have such a, a, a community that still stays so connected um, during this time. And I just pray that for anybody who's feeling lonely right now, anybody who's feeling um, just isolated in this season, Lord, I pray that they would um, feel your presence surrounding them today, that your Holy Spirit would be with them where they are today, God, and that they would um, know that you are with them and that you walk with them every single day. I pray that you would uh, bless the message today and that we would all be able to take what the Lord has for us to hear um, through Jordan. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to Blue Water's first online baby dedication. A baby dedication is when we present new children to the community at large so that the community can offer them a family blessing and take responsibility to help rear the children uh, in the ways and the resources of the Lord together. Uh, what we're going to do is present the babies to uh, you. We're going to pray over them. Uh, in the power of the Spirit, perhaps offer the children a short prophetic word or two. And each of the families will eventually receive from our children's ministry a little book on blessing children and a little anointing oil uh, to help them do it. Uh, first up today uh, will be Philip and Adriana Buis with their new son, Oscar, and he is a big kid, uh, about four months old. Yes? There he is. That's a good looking kid. Uh, so let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, as a community, uh, we present uh, Oscar to you and raise up the Buis family and pray, Lord, that all of the blessings that we have as the family of Christ would adhere to them as a household within the family of Christ. Uh, we pray, Lord, that your spirit even now would flow through Oscar. Uh, little tiny brother, I just want to bless you. Uh, I bless you as, an, as, an, as a navigator. I feel like the Lord give me that word. Someone who will be able to navigate uh, regions of the world and changes in the world and always know the right way to go and the right thing to do. I just bless you uh, as uh, one who understands uh, the great principles of the kingdom of God uh, in the world. I bless your gift of wisdom and your tune uh, uh, to the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Way to go, little guy. Thumbs up, Oscar. All right, Ryan and Candice uh, with little Micah. Micah is the one without the three-day beard. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we once again present the Frontiera family to you and pray that you would share with that household all the blessings of the community of Christ. Uh, in the name of Jesus, we pledge to you uh, uh, the honor that is due new life in the house of the Lord. Micah, in Jesus' name, uh, we as a community uh, bless you uh, in your gifts of expression is bless your nascent gifts uh, uh, for uh, music and for command uh, and uh, just bless your voice in the house of the Lord to always lead people uh, into worship and to always lead people into passion. I pray Lord that you'd give this child a, a big voice from the very beginning and that you would give him a, a brashness uh, that carries the day in any number of situations. Make it holy and make it fruitful in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I see you. Good job. Thanks, guys. Daniel and Sora, this is a twofer. You got Isaac and Joshua. I forget which one is the older. Which one is older? Isaac. Isaac? Yeah. All right. Uh, so we have to uh, pray through too. Uh, Father God, we pray that you'd give uh, the Lim family a double dose of grace, a double dose of energy, um, but that none of your purposes uh, would, uh, would be lost in, in, in the mix. Uh, I just bless you two brothers uh, in Jesus' name, that one of you would have a particularly large family and that one of you would be a blessing to families in particular in the household of the Lord. Just have a feeling that one will find uh, a big place in the world and that one will be tuned to serving within the church. And I pray, Lord, that these brothers together uh, would cover a great range of community uh, between them. Uh, Isaac, I just bless you with uncommon security in the Lord. Um, that you will always be clothed and provided and ready in life. Ah. And Ashua, I just pray, uh, I bless you to be one who is particularly sensitive to the winds of the Spirit and who always knows how the Lord is guiding. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Bless you guys. Let's do Rob and Erica and the Mominos. Little Robbie, Jr. Father, we, uh, we hold the Molino family to you and pray, Lord, for your abundant provision, uh, for your guidance, and that you would apportion for them a pleasant place uh, in this world. Uh, we hold uh, Robbie up to you. Robbie, in the name of Jesus, I just bless you uh, as your older brother in the Lord. Uh, I bless you as, uh, as a young man of, of, of craft, uh, a young man who understands 
how things work and is able to, to build anything in, in life, anything that he needs, whether it is a thing or uh, a family. Um, I pray, Lord, as it is written, that you would bless the work of his hands and that they would always prosper. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you guys. Good job. Thank you. Bye, Eden. So Eric and Hannah. Oh, there we are. Eric and Hannah and little baby Koa, who has awesome hair. Uh, Father, we lift the Watt family up to you and pray uh, that you would solidify their foundation as a family, that you would give them uh, stability and certainty uh, in an uncertain time. Uh, we lift up baby Koa to you, Lord, and pray that all the blessings that we have to offer as a family of God uh, would adhere to this small child. Koa, in the name of Jesus, I just bless you as, as, a, as a young man of, of uh, nature and who finds uh, the peace and the wisdom of the Lord uh, in, in the mountains, in the trees, in the streams, in the ocean. Uh, I bless your eyes uh, to apprehend at an early age the majesty and the ways of God in all things. And I bless you in the name of Jesus to carry the message of peace into the world. Uh, the message for which all of creation groans and waits in Jesus' name. Amen. Good job, guys. Bless you with the Lord's provision. We have the Bright family uh, dedicating two kids, uh, Phoenix and Indy. Father God, we pray that the blessing of the family of Christ would be upon this family, that you would bless them in all the ways they need for uh, provision and for guidance, uh, wisdom in all things. Uh, we lift Phoenix up to you, Lord. Um, this is the child of the yoke of Christ. And we just bless you, Phoenix, that the Lord's burden on you would be easy and light and bring you rest. Uh, that you are a child of uncommon supernatural energy. And uh, this will characterize you for all of your days, that you will be tireless before the Lord in Jesus' name. And we pray that you would um, have a contagion of evangelism as a result, all of your days uh, beginning when you are young, that you would be a connection uh, that brings other families into the kingdom. Uh, we lift you up, Indy, uh, and give you the blessings as your community in Christ, as a young woman in the household of God. I just bless in Jesus' name. It's the power of the gift and the mission of healing in your life, uh, little girl. We pray, Father, uh, that a river of healing would flow through, flow through this little child, and though that she is compassionate, uh, she would also be strong and not pushed around in the world. I pray, Lord, that she would be well-rooted in both the power and the love of uh, her healing ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Good job, guys. Let me give one final prayer for everyone. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would knit us together in faith as a family in Christ. Uh, and that... Uh, all of these little ones would be made secure in the net of love that you have provided uh, here at Blue Water and that the blessing of fellowship would attend to them wherever they go in life. We bless all of these little feet to travel well in the years that come. We pray, Lord, for supernatural provision for these families in a time that is very tumultuous. You are in control, and as a community, for the sake of our families, we recognize that you are the God of provision. In Jesus' name, everybody says, amen. Good job, guys. Thank you. 
That was a wonderful baby dedication service. Congratulations to our parents and their children. You know, children are a gift from God and are precious to Him. So church, let's support our parents as they love their kids to grow in the fullest potential that God has for them. You can do this by praying for them, being available if they need help in any way, or better yet, if you need, want to feel led to serve in the Cakey Youth Ministry. And that's something that is really amazing that we all um, need support in. So contact Roller or Connor if that really speaks to you. Speaking of our Cakey Youth, Rolo and Connor are beginning online gatherings for them. So if you're third to fifth grade, the online gathering is Sundays at 9.30 a.m. And that'll be led by Rolo, our children's pastor. If you're in junior high, the online gathering also is at 9.30 in the morning, but that'll be led by Connor, the youth pastor. If you're a high schooler, you get to sleep in a little bit because the online gathering will be at 11 a.m. And that's also led by Connor. One thing so wonderful about Rolo and Connor is they strike an amazing balance that these guys love Jesus and are also cool at the same time. Not everybody can pull that off. So these are really great guys. So also, if you are someone who's kind of new to the church um, or you're a youth that you um, haven't been connected yet and you, that's just something that's interesting to you, please contact Rolo and Connor and they'll be more than happy to connect you um, and get you plugged in, okay? So now let's go to our situation with our tithes and our offerings. Really, uh, when I became a Christian uh, many years ago as a youth, um, one thing that I learned early on was really tithes and offerings is really a benefit for me because it's sacrificing a portion of my income and helps me look outside of myself and makes me more aware of the needs of others. And in all truth, it all belongs to God anyway. So we're really managers of what God gives us. So bottom line, it's really a faith lifestyle of generosity and that's how God is as a character. So God loves a cheerful giver. So if you feel led to give to the church, go on the website in the give section and you can give online or you can just do it the old school way, which is send it through the mail. Allow God to just press on your heart in sense of a, a spirit of generosity, whether it be giving to a church, maybe it's giving to a missionary, giving to a nonprofit organization such as Let Grace In or Palama Settlement. Maybe it's giving to a homeless person that is residing near your home or your workplace or school, or better yet, even giving to someone who's a, a neighbor who's really struggling at a certain time. In the end, it's all about investing directly to what's on God's heart, okay? So let's pray our, for our tithes and our offerings and for our kids, right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us um, so much to manage in all our resources, particularly money. And I pray, Father, that every single cent that is given in your name, God, that you will multiply it, Lord, that you'll meet the needs of the people that need it, Lord. Give us the wisdom, Lord, to allocate it in all the places that need to receive it. I pray, Father, that you'll just bless those folks in every way. Lord, I also pray, Father, for our kids. And because I just bless you right now for the ongoing guidance as, as young people, as you embark on new and uncharted back to school scenarios. I know it's challenging, it's different, but I bless you in that. I bless you in just your protection and your safety and that God will redeem everything that has been lost during these times. And I also pray blessing over our parents and our guardians that you receive strategy and strength and unity in building and maintaining the family culture of faith, hope, and love. Lord, we just pray for all these things in your son's most precious name. Amen. Jesus brings grace and mercy and forgiveness, not just for us as individuals, but for our whole society. And I feel that, um, you know, like even during this time of this, a pandemic, um, I'm reminded about God's grace, no matter what. A society has goodness and freedom brought into it when the poor of that society, when the marginalized have goodness and freedom brought to them, right? And so whether that's individually, you know, when Jesus hung out with the lepers um, or you know, saw the the people that the rest of the site didn't see. I just thought, you know, that Jesus inspired a spirit of radical generosity because they, they shared equally among mm -hmm. each other. I can't think of anywhere else I've seen that in practice, that they shared equally. But then I also thought of the underground church in China and other places mm -hmm. around the world. And I feel like in 
those are, you know, segments of society. They're just underground. But I feel like in those groups that Jesus has really inspired courage in people because they're often put in situations where they kind of have to act boldly and they have to act out in a lot of faith in order to practice their faith. Kind of miracles and just being loving. People just kind of highlight that, especially in the Bible. Miracles, being love, being generosity, like it's all kind of highlighted about what Jesus does and calling is and stuff. If you dislike slavery and oppression of women, if you are against infanticide, if you think it's important to elevate the poor, if you appreciate individual rights and freedom for the common person, if you enjoy education and generally think justice is a good thing, then you should be thankful for the influence of Christianity on global society. And the Christian message is still the great hope for continued social progress. In Ferlingian, France, there is a monument to a football match, a soccer game. It's actually a monument to something called the Christmas Truce, which happened in the first year of World War I. World War I was a terrible war. It was characterized by trench warfare. This was due to the invention of the machine gun mostly. On the western front of the war, and between France and Germany, the troops got bogged down because machine guns made it hard to advance against the enemy. And so the soldiers dug trenches and they just lived in these trenches for years. And they would every day get up and kill each other as they tried to cross the no man's land between the trenches. But it was a terrible, hellish deathscape, a stalemate in the war until Christmas 1914. The story goes that some soldiers started singing carols and then some soldiers on the other side joined in in the carols and before long enemy soldiers were crawling out of the trenches and going into no man's land and exchanging little gifts with one another, cigarettes or pieces of chocolate. They were enjoying Christmas fellowship and peace because they dearly desired peace. And some of those soldiers decided to play a soccer game. If you're interested, Germany won two to one. Uh, but it was such a, uh, an epic moment that eventually veterans of the war would go back and build a monument in that place. Why do I tell that story? I tell that story because young men in hell intuitively appreciate the power of the Christian message. They understand that it's the Christian message, the Christmas story, that brings peace to a deathscape of a world. Christianity has become influential in the world. It's become the most popular religion in the world. And that is a mystery because when Christianity emerged into the world, nobody would have predicted it. It was a set of beliefs that were championed by a bunch of Galilean fishermen unresourced, uneducated, working-class stiffs from a backwoods region in a backwoods country. The Jews of Palestine opposed Christianity. The Romans, who were a dominant empire unlike any other empire, opposed Christianity. And yet somehow, these little guys managed to create a global movement. And you have to explain how Christianity succeeded. It is stunning that it did. It seems to me that there are only two possible explanations. One, Christianity is true and that God has made it succeed and people who have encountered God have embraced Christianity and that spread, uh, explains the spread around the world. Or two, Christianity is amazingly useful because worldviews exist in sort of this hyper-competitive natural selection. There are lots of worldviews around Earth. And the ones that win are the ones that people find most useful. The ones that are most advantageous through time are the only ones that survive. So if Christianity came out of nowhere from nothing and spread rapidly around the globe, it must be incredibly useful. Or it must be true. Either way, you should honor and respect it. And the world should probably realize this. But people forget this. People forget this. As I think people forget that 
worship has been a huge part of making humans human generally. Uh, one of my hobbies is deep history. I love reading about ancient people groups and ancient civilization and these archaeological digs of these ruins of cities in Turkey that go back like 11,000, 12,000 years. I love that stuff. Wherever we find evidence of ancient civilizations, wherever we find truly ancient ruins in the old world or in the new world, we find evidence of mass worship. It's as if worship of the divine is, was the driving factor in human civilization. Um, we should cherish that as humans. It's played an important role. But it might also be worth noting that when political systems become formally atheistic, that is when large groups of people reject the idea of worship or reject the idea of God in the world in any form, whenever that has happened throughout history, it has gotten bad very quickly. Uh, fortunately, I think for the human race, it hasn't happened that often. You have like national socialism, uh, that was formerly atheistic. National socialists are like, you know, the Nazis, the Germans, the Italians of, of World War II. International socialism, which is sometimes called communism, uh, formerly atheistic. The most genocidal forms of government in human history, uh, which I think should say something. But my favorite example of uh, the contrast that atheistic political systems present is actually from the French Revolution, uh, which is more my wheelhouse. This is more like the stuff that I studied when I was in grad school. Um, you guys ever learn the history of the French Revolution? Anyone? Yeah. No? Clock? Yes? Um, so the French Revolution happened about the same time as the American Revolution. It was really just a few years after. And it was inspired by a lot of the same thinkers that inspired the American Revolution. Um, and, and indeed, you know, the French had helped us in the American Revolution. The American Revolution, you probably know uh, that history. It, it went fairly well, as it turned out. Uh, it started a unique form of government, a unique political experiment based on individual rights. And it was sustained. Uh, and uh, it was, you know, the first truly um, democratic experiment that was sustained throughout history and so far has continued. The French Revolution happened a few years later. The same idea that you would overthrow the monarchy, that you would overthrow um, the old system and give sovereignty to the people. The difference was the French Revolution was expressly atheistic and humanistic. Uh, the American Revolution said, we uh, hold these truths to be self-evident, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Well, that was missing from the French Revolution, and they insisted on atheism and humanism, so they wiped out the church. And what happened in the French Revolution was complete bloodshed, complete social meltdown, uh, classism, uh, vast murders uh, in the street. It looked a lot like um, the Chinese Cultural Revolution. Uh, if you know that history. And the revolution failed because the classes, the groups, blamed one another for everything that was wrong and ended up murdering each other. And the democratic revolution uh, fell apart and led to the Napoleonic dictatorships instead. It's as if history is telling us, no, you need God to be at the center of your society. You need God to be at the center of your polity. And if that doesn't happen, at least in some way, then you are at great risk. Things tend to fall apart. In Deuteronomy 30, after God has given uh, basically his commandments to the people of Israel, uh, he explains it this way. See, I set before you today life and prosperity or death and destruction. For I command you today to love your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Because then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess it. Today I set before you life and death. Choose life. That's how God puts it. It's like I'm telling you these things because they are good for you. 
because this is health, not just for you, but for future generations so that you may increase and actually do well in the land that you inhabit. In any case, Christianity has certainly been influential uh, in the world in many ways that I think we no longer fail to appreciate. Even non-believers are more affected by Christianity than they know. The effect that Christianity had in the Greco-Roman world into which it emerged at the time, into the Roman Empire, uh, was just, just stunning. I'll just go through a few different major contributions that the Christian church made to the society that it grew to influence. And the first, and, and perhaps you know, my favorite, has to do with just the nobility of the common person, or what we might call today individual rights. Uh, due to the influence of Christianity, the world became non-classist. It was no longer ranked or stratified among groups like it was uh, previous to Christianity. Individual rights emerge, which would become the bedrock of equality everywhere in the world where we find equality. Uh, and that simply did not exist in world history before Christianity. It just didn't exist. You're not going to find it. That is a contribution of Christianity itself. Again, when the American Revolution has said, we are endowed, people are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that didn't exist in the world. They could not have said it that way before Christianity uh, happened. How did it happen? Well, Christianity started as um, a movement of, of the common man, right? The common person. Jesus saw fit to give the kingdom of God to a bunch of largely illiterate, uneducated fishermen from the backwoods of a backwoods country. And Christianity spread throughout the Greco-Roman world basically through common people, largely through slaves and women, as history tells us. And yet, these unapologetically common people were inexplicably powerful. They changed communities. They changed cities. You know, one family at a time, one person at a time. It was a completely grassroots movement of a sort that we don't find in history previous to the movement of Christianity. And again, it was inexplicable because all the powers that be, all the great powers opposed the flow of Christianity but through just powerful, common individuals, Christianity grew and became increasingly popular individual and preached a message of every person is valuable. Every person is holy. Every person has a calling. Every person is, is, a, is a priest, effectively. Every person is eternal. And that message transformed culture bit by bit. Of course, it took a while, but Christians, Christian churches, Christian communities were the only place where you could find it uh, for centuries. Wrapped up in that is this idea of the sanctity of human life. In the Greco-Roman world where Christianity emerged, infanticide was rampant, the killing of infants. If a child was born deformed, it had any sort of physical impediment, or if a child was born a female, there was actually a, a fair chance that it would simply be killed because girl children were looked down upon and they were a hassle. Infanticide wasn't unique uh, to the Roman world, of course. Um, you found it all over the Middle East. You found it all over India, China, Japan uh, at the time. You found it everywhere except in the Christian world. And the Christians preached against it. Plato, who was the most dominant Greco-Roman philosopher of the, area, of the era, much like Planned Parenthood in the 20th century in America, recommended abortion and infanticide as a means of social engineering, a way to filter out undesirables from society. One of the ways that Christians made a name for themselves was preaching against that philosophy. And what they would do is that they, would, uh, they became famous slash infamous for collecting abandoned babies. One popular means of infanticide in the Greco-Roman world was just to leave the baby out on the cliffs to die to exposure. And all the Christians would go out and get them. You know, the physically handicapped babies, 
the little girl babies, and the Christians would raise them. It became part of their social justice movement. And gradually, over about the next four centuries, the killings stopped. The role of women in the early church, of course, was an honorable role. We read about this in scripture all the time, as we read in, in uh, the book of Acts, which we went through recently. Uh, women leaders were really valued, which was very countercultural in that day and age. It was an incredibly patriarchal society, as was most of the world at the time. Um, women leaders were valued. We read about uh, the, the role and influence of Priscilla, for instance, in the book of Acts, Lydia who was the founder of the church in, in Philippi. Um, of course, you read about all the women that supported Jesus in the Gospels as well. And from time to time, Paul would have to write in his epistles uh, to the churches, like, you know, don't let, don't let uh, women be um, unconscious of the social norms, right? We don't want to be known primarily as a women's live movement. We want to be known as a Jesus movement. Uh, that's how extreme the degree of freedom women had relative to the dominant cultures of the age. Of course, this has varied throughout history. In some places and sometimes the Christian church has disallowed women um, from, from leading. But I think that mostly has to do with local culture as opposed to what we read in scripture, uh, which is fairly pro-women uh, leadership and certainly pro-women as, uh, as individuals go. If you think that Christianity has not had a powerful effect on freedom for women in society, then go to any non-Christian culture in the world today and compare. And you will see the influence that Christianity has had. I find it ironic today that, at least in Western cultures, Christians are seen by some people to be anti-women primarily because Christians still fight infanticide, right? We are still anti-abortion and anti-abandoning children. And for some reason, that has been labeled as anti-women today in ways that I don't understand. Uh, slavery, of course, is a great social evil in the world. At the time of Christ, 75% of the population of Athens, the dominant Greek city, was slaves, and over half the population of Rome was slaves. And Christianity just attacked that straightforward. Uh, one of the ways it attacked it was by treating slaves as equals, right? Slaves were honored as individuals because that's, that's how Christianity does it. Um, and if you could honor the person standing in front of you as an individual person, as opposed to seeing that person as a representative of a group or class, uh, then, of course, that tended to weaken the institutions of classism and oppression and, and, and slavery. Second, of course, Christianity recommended generosity and grace and what do we today would call uh, justice. Uh, famously in scripture, Paul told Philemon, a slave owner, that he should no longer keep Onesimus as a slave. And this would have been like a slave as an indentured servant, right? So sort of a a looser form of slavery, but Paul was still like, look, it's more important to treat that person as an individual, as a Christian brother, than to treat that person as someone that you can exploit. We don't do that in Christ. And that became the dominant Christian message. He told the Galatian Christians that now in Christ Jesus, there was no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, man nor women is an incredibly individualistic way to see society. And that became the dominant Christian message. The Christian anti-slavery stance in the opening centuries of Christianity was not popular at all in the world. So Christian leaders had to keep at it. They had to keep hard at it. So in the fourth century, uh, the Christian uh, church father Lactanius in, in his work, The Divine Institutes, argued that in God's eyes there could be no slaves because God just didn't see it. He just didn't see one person as lower than another. Uh, famous church father Augustine argued against slavery in the city of God, which was probably the most influential non-Bible book of early Christendom. Church father Christostom in the fourth century encouraged Christians to go out and buy slaves 
so that they could then set the slaves free. And that became a work of Christian social justice uh, in, in early Christendom. And then, of course, later in the 18th, 19th centuries, uh, we have famous Christian abolitionists. In Britain, we had William Wilberforce, who fought slavery due to his faith in Christ. And uh, in America, the Christian abolitionist movement is quite well known and quite, uh, quite famous. But my favorite example of the Christian fight against slavery comes from St. Patrick. One, is my, one of my favorite historical figures of all time. St. Patrick was just, is just a stud. Uh, the guy was just awesome. Do you know the story of Patrick? I mean, the whole story of St. Patrick, right? St. Patrick was a, like, fifth century guy. Uh, he was a Briton, a Roman Briton, lived in Britain, and he was captured by Irish slave traders at a certain point, Celtic slave traders. So they captured him, and they took him into slavery in Ireland. And it was there that he began reaching out to God. He had some Christianity in his background because he was a Roman, like he had like a grandfather who was a, a minister of some sort, something like that. But he had never been a Christian. As a slave, he started reaching out to God, and then he escaped from slavery due to direction from the Holy Spirit, a prophetic word as it turned out, and escaped back to Britain and then was convicted that he himself had to become a Christian minister. So he went to seminary for a while, and then late in life, like, you know, got into his 40s, it was quite old in that day, he went back to Ireland to minister to the people who had taken him slave. And he basically evangelized the entirety of Ireland. I mean, it all became Christian. There was a chunk in the South that didn't, but an incredibly effective evangelistic ministry. The Celts, the Irish Celts, up until that time had been the most prolific and vicious slave traders of Western Europe. And within a generation, slavery completely disappeared uh, in, in the Celtic Isles. And we have two writings from Patrick. One is his Confessions, which is sort of a, an autobiography. And two is a letter he wrote in protest against a man named Caroticus, who was a slave raider uh, from, from, the, from the British side of the water. Acroticus had invaded Ireland, taken some Irish people captive, took them back to uh, Britain in order, well, to, it wasn't Britain then, but the Britain side of things, in order to sell those people into slavery. And Patrick wrote a circular letter. He sent it to all the leaders uh, in the region and said, this cannot be allowed because those Irish people could be Christian brothers and sisters. Wiped out slavery uh, in, in the British Isles. Not to mention that the descendants of Patrick, the Irish monks, pretty much saved civilization from there on out. This is a broader story. Um, I recommend a book to you, a book by a man named Thomas Cahill. It's called How the Irish Saved Civilization. And basically it's a story about how Patrick's monks uh, uh, preserved Christianity and Western learning and Bible translations and all of the great works of Western culture in monasteries in Ireland after Patrick's death. Europe had been uh, devastated by the fall of Rome. It was in the Dark Ages. It lost all of its Christian institutions and all of its learning. And it was only because Irish evangelists came back from Ireland into Europe and established monasteries and center of learning and centers of evangelism that any of those institutions were restored. Patrick was a stud, and his descendants were fantastic. And the network of monasteries that those Irish monks established became the schools of Europe, became the centers of, of, of literacy, and of course, evangelism, and of course, justice. The role that Christianity played in bringing education to the masses uh, of the world is almost incalculably large. It's hard to get your head around it because churches were the center of learning. They were the only viable institution in the Western world for quite some time. They became centers of learning, centers of literacy, centers of literature, and centers that welcomed in all comers. Anybody could come uh, to these monasteries, at least for a while. And there was science, of course. I've talked about the relationship between faith and science and the history of faith and science and other Blue Water sermons. But the birth and the growth of science in the world, particularly the Western world, was carried on in large part by men and women who were passionate 
about discovering God's natural laws in the world. Famous people like uh, Gregor Mendel and Copernicus and Tycho Brahe and Johannes Kepler and Galileo himself and Isaac Newton and Leibniz and Michael Faraday, all Christians, all seeking to understand the way that God made the world. In fields like chemistry, you have uh, Robert Boyle and John Dalton and in America, George Washington Carver in medicine, you get uh, Paracelsus in the 1400s and Ambrose Paré in the 1500s, Louis Pasteur in the 1800s, and many more in modern times. These were all Christians. And it really wasn't until the controversy about evolution, uh, which came in the, what, the early 20th century, that people really even thought about a split between faith and science. That is a very recent controversy. And then there's sexual culture. The Greco-Roman sexual culture into which Christianity emerged was entirely debauched. It was terrible. Uh, it was totally embracing of promiscuity and adultery and child molestation and sex trafficking and bestiality and you name it. Uh, it was all popular in the Greco-Roman world. And Christians were mocked for a long time for opposing uh, the sexual culture of the Greco-Roman world. They were mocked for it until gradually they changed it as Christianity became more popular. Uh, I've been reading uh, recently about the value of monogamy in human society. Whew, there's exciting reading, let me tell you. The value of monogamy. Uh, social scientists will all tell you that there is a strong correlation between stable, monogamous families and health and wealth for their children, for communities. If there was one thing that you could give to America uh, that would solve any number of social ills, it would be stable, monogamous families. Number one correlate uh, against uh, poverty uh, in, in America. Scientists are theorizing about how humans seem to have become uh, monogamous because it's clear that our biology, particularly male biology, does not necessarily lend itself to monogamy. Uh, any of you guys want to say amen? Any married guys? We'll just let that one go. Um, the theory is that monogamy in human society uh, arises uh, due to the long juvenile period of human children. Uh, because humans evolved to walk upright, uh, women have narrow pelvises, uh, human infants need to be born small and undeveloped, which means that it takes them a long time in the world to mature. And because the human juvenile period is so long, there's a great advantage to having the father participate in the parenting, right? Because parenting is such a hard job for humans to do well. It's so long, it's so strenuous. Uh, and so marriage, right? So long, stable mating relationships are a huge advantage uh, to human development and in human society. But monogamy is hard for us to pull off. Right? That we don't necessarily do it naturally. And a recent study at University College of London shows that monogamy has only been normal in the human world at all for the last thousand years. In other words, the human species is at this moment of flux. Right? Monogamy is really, really good for us, but we're still trying to find our way into embracing it wholeheartedly. Right? And if you don't think that's true, just look around. Right? Obviously, uh, that's true. Well, Christianity is what made monogamy popular. Christianity is what made stable married relationships popular. And Christianity is what reinforced it in human society. And that's a social good almost unparalleled among social goods. What it has done for human society is fantastic.
I probably don't have to mention Christian contributions to things like charity or you know, hospital outreach and stuff like that because you can see evidence of that all over the world. Christians are servants and they are volunteers. What you might not realize is the way in which going to church is healthy for you as an individual, apart from your eternal salvation, that is. Uh, Church-going Christians live on average between five and nine years longer than other humans. Woohoo! If those Christian churchgoers are vegetarians, it's even better, but I won't go into that this week. I won't go into that this week. Uh, Christians are more likely to um, describe themselves as happy. They're uh, they've got uh, an inbuilt 11% advantage against uh, depression of all sorts. They are, of course, less likely to smoke or drink or fall prey to any sort of addictions, except coffee. <laughs> they are 35% uh, less likely to experience divorce. And they are more likely to participate in volunteerism of all sorts in their community. In other words, you want Christians in your neighborhood. You want Christians in your town because they are by far the most active and the best volunteers uh, for social goodness uh, in, in the world. They are even more likely to vote than other Americans. Even all that, I think the real genius of Christianity is not just that it promotes all of these good values that I'm talking about, but that it finds its way, it finds a way to draw itself back to them throughout history. Christianity doesn't drift that far from its own heart, from its own center. And this is something that makes Christianity unique among world faith systems. <clears throat> Christianity is populated with humans, uh, which is a big disadvantage uh, because humans are messes, right? They are really inconsistent and sometimes they do not behave in a way that is true to what they believe. Um, and, you know, we find this uh, throughout Scripture. We recently went through the book of Acts together at Blue Water. And the story of Acts is one of, of biased humans coming to terms with God's love for other ethnic groups and other classes. It was hard for the early Galilean Christians to embrace that Gentiles could come into the kingdom of God. It was hard for them to let the Roman oppressors off the hook and, and to pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit too. It was not easy and they messed up a lot, but you see them figure it out, right? And that's the genius of Christianity. It takes imperfect humans, messy humans, biased humans, and it calls them constantly to the heart of health and justice in the world. You read through the, the epistles and you see Christian leaders constantly re-encouraging their people to do it well. Don't play favorites. Don't neglect the poor. Right? Don't think that you're better become your, because you're rich. You know, don't, don't look down on people because they're young or old or female. In Galatians 2, we read about a controversy that Paul had with Peter, the leader of the church. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, Paul said, because he stood condemned. What was the problem? Well, Peter wasn't treating Gentile Christians as well as he was treating Jewish Christians, and Paul called him out uh, in front of the assembly. They had to figure it out. And that's the story, right? Humans always have to figure it out. We always are bad at these sorts of things. But it's the Christian message that calls us back to them. And that's really what we're talking about. Not that Christians have done perfectly, but can, Christians are always challenged by the message of Christ to do better. Danny spoke so well last week in the sermon about God's plan for world cultures, uh, which in a nutshell uh, is, is that he leaves clues about himself in all world cultures, but also ensures that no one world culture has all of the pieces. So it turns out we need unity. We need to pursue unity in order to be clear and strong in our understanding of God and our pursuit of God. Some early Christians understood that. Paul understood it. Luke, who wrote about Paul, understood it. And some didn't understand it too well and had to struggle to get to it. But the Christian message helped them get to it. And that's the genius 
That's the gift that Christianity has brought to the world. And we've seen that play out throughout history. Even when there has been inconsistency in the church, it has constantly been able to call itself back and, and to make corrections. But here's my larger point. The fact that we as a broader society, as a broader human society, value foreign cultures at all, the fact that we as a broader human society value individual rights at all, that's due to Christianity. Christianity is where that came from. Christianity taught that to the rest of the world. It did not exist before Christianity existed. And that's a blessing. That's a blessing. And that's a reason to be confident in the goodness of the message that we preach no matter what broader culture is saying about Christianity right now. History testifies to the validity of what Jesus taught. One of the truly amazing things about Christianity is how it is phenomenologically self-correcting. I think this has to do with the Christian tradition of revival. Christianity is the only religion that has mass revival from time to time. We've seen that over the last 2,000 years. A revival is a return to orthodoxy. A revival is a return to the heart of the Christian message, um, as opposed to shifting toward popular culture or watering down the Christian message in order to be more acceptable to the world. When groups of Christians throughout history have started behaving badly, well, we often see at that point this inexplicable mass movement back toward Christian health. We call them revivals, right? Mass repentance, mass conviction, mass moves of righteousness, which are always precedent to mass evangelism and mass moves of social justice. <clears throat> right before the American Revolution, there was an incredible outpouring in the colonies. I could tell story after story about that. It's when people realize the power of Christian belief they're able to do incredible social things. Do not doubt that the Christian message is powerful and good and transformative. Do not doubt it. It is transformative for you, and it is transformative for the society around us. It's always worth calling people back to the values that marked Christianity throughout history. Because uh, we do sometimes drift, don't we? We do sometimes forget the heart of our own message. We do sometimes forget the power of our own message. But that's because we're sinful. It's not because Christianity itself is flawed. And if I could give Christians a gift right now, uh, I would give them confidence. If we're finding trying cultural times, well, these are times that call out for confidence in the Christian message. These times call out for confidence in Jesus' discipleship. Stay true to what's true. It's never failed. And it's not like it's going to fail today. You can trust what you believe, and if anything, I think you should double down on it, particularly now. If anything, I think we should seek a revival with great social influence as revivals always tend to have, a restoration of what we have generally been throughout history and what we should always be. Because it turns out the message works, the message is good, and the message is good for everyone. So Father God, I would pray for uh, the spirit of conviction uh, among the brothers and sisters you know, because before we can spread the message to society as a whole, we need to be confident in the message ourselves. And we need to live it with integrity and get right with respect to it so that the truth and the power of the gospel can flow through us unimpeded. We pray, Lord, for conviction and courage that we would speak and live in the strength of our convictions, not being deceived by those who would seek to 
uh, convince us that Christianity itself is flawed and weak and problematic. No, Lord, the gospel has transformed an incalculable number of lives and done great work in innumerable societies. We trust what we believe, Lord, and we trust you, Holy Spirit, to guide us forward, that even if we have drifted from the heart of things, that you would move us back. I pray, Lord, for a movement in the church to get back to the heart of the gospel. I pray, Lord, that it would translate into healing in the world, uh, to the salvation and restoration of many people, many neighborhoods, many communities. What the world needs is the gospel. And we trust that to be true, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining our service today. We hope that this series on navigating the cultural landscape is challenging you and encouraging you, um, helping you to navigate it well and wherever you find yourself. We have an amazing prayer team of people who I know personally and a privilege to run with and they are available on Sundays from 10.30 to 11 to pray for you. Um, you can just email your information and someone will contact you during that time. And I bless you today to receive the peace of God that it would settle over you and you'd have an amazing day and a wonderful week. And we will see you next time. Thank you. Aloha.